Everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Lunch with Legs. Legs Malone here, wishing you all a wonderful day or evening whenever you are tuning in. It brings me so much pleasure to be recording this looking out on the most beautiful, sunny spring day. Man, I just love the springtime. <laughs> I am not going to lie. This winter was so brutal. And to be looking out with all of the bursting green tree tips and people in various states of undress, it just... Mm, warms the cockles of my heart. I hope you guys are all doing well. I am so excited to bring this week's episode to you. Uh, but before we get into that, I actually have two announcements. One of them, of course, is please, please, please support the Lunch with Legs podcast by visiting our website and clicking on the wonderful image of Joe Boobs Weldon's burlesque handbook, which is on sale at Amazon.com. You click on that image at, again, www.lunchwithlegs.com. It will take you right to Amazon, and you can buy anything you want, a garden hose, toilet paper, sex toys, that book on astrocartography you've been wanting to buy for so long. You can buy all of that, and as long as you complete the purchase on that visit, we will get a very small percentage, uh, a worthy percentage, certainly, of your purchase, and it would be so fabulous for you guys to help us while helping yourselves. So please don't be a stranger. Visit our Amazon portal at lunchwithlegs.com and buy, buy, buy. I would never think I would push such a raw commercial thing, but fuck it. Buy, buy, buy. <laughs> My second announcement is actually our very first, I guess you could say advertising, but this one is purely out of gratitude and with the wishes and prayers that many of you guys will be able to profit and uh, make the most out of a really beautiful weekend away, much as I did a few weekends ago. I was very fortunate to be invited up to the beautiful Racebrook Lodge in uh, Sheffield, Massachusetts. It's just over the Massachusetts border from Connecticut, very close to New York State as well. It's about a, I don't know, a little under three-hour drive from New York City. And the wonderful folks up there, Casey in particular, uh, invited me up to spend a much-needed weekend away. And oh my God, if you guys need a little nature break, oh, just go there. They have the most beautiful trails. There is a mountain right there, like a straight up mountain. <laughs> and there are some really beautiful trails all the way up it. It was a little too snowy when I was there, so I couldn't go up too far. But oh my lord, the running river, the trails, the total lack of human noise was incredible. And if you guys want to go up there, please be sure to mention my name, Legs Malone, when you call to register. It is the Racebrook Lodge, again, in Sheffield, Massachusetts. Their website is rblodge.com, and they have some great and incredibly affordable weekend packages. And better yet, they take dogs. If you have a dog who is desperate to run and run and run outside the hours of... 9 a.m. and 9 p.m., which is when the leash laws are in effect here in the city in the parks, or you don't live anywhere close to a dog park, much like yours truly, I highly recommend this beautiful weekend away. 
If I am correct, weekend rates begin at a little over $100. Um, again, please check the website rblodge.com uh, to double check that. But holy Moses, guys, seriously, the midweek retreats are even less expensive. And again, if you are a performer or nightlife goer, outer, and producer and performer, much like I am, the midweek uh, retreats are just stunning. Again, rblodge.com. If you talk to Casey, or better yet, Craig at the front desk, tell him Legs sent you. And enjoy yourselves. We really need to be able to get out into quiet, beautiful, clean nature as much as possible, especially if you live in New York City. It's a great city, but shit, we all need a break every now and again. Anyway, Enough with the announcements and advertisements. Let's get going with this week's episode. It was such a pleasure to interview the one and only Michael Formica Jones for this podcast. For those of you who are familiar with the very vibrant drag scene in the 1990s uh, and up into the 2000s, you probably know him better as Mistress Formica. You will have seen him at Wigstock. He was also an integral part of some really incredible New York City nightlife moments, uh, especially Squeezebox, which he does talk about. And I do hope that movie that was made about it gets out there into wide distribution. It's a it's a bitch with music rights. I understand that it's there for a reason, but oof, what a moment in New York City nightlife history. So go ahead, pull up a chair, pour yourself a cup of something good, and get ready for the one and only Michael Formica Jones. Michael Formica Jones, thank you so much for being on Lunch with Legs. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> so happy to be here with Legs. Oh my goodness, such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank How you, you for been? Me. I've been good. Yeah. I've been good. Just keeping busy, keeping going in nightlife in New York. Yeah, so you I, are. You are a one man machine. It's amazing. You are one of the more prolific of my friends on Facebook. I mean, your parties and your DJing and your everything. It's <laughs> oh God, it's so much stuff, so much stuff. But you know, nowadays that's it has to be like that, you know. Yeah. You know, when I first started, which was in the early '90s, as I date myself, wow. it was it was different. It was a different time, you know. Most people just had one party that they did, and that's where they made their money, and that's where they made their living, you know. And outside of nightlife, you had another job, whether it was waiting tables or hosting at a restaurant or doing your nine to five job, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. nightlife was more or less just for fun and to make some extra money and to be creative and to express yourself, you know, now for a lot of people, including myself, it's like a full-time job, you know, yeah. and, uh, it definitely doesn't have the clientele that it used to have back, you know, 20 years ago or so. Man. And that was such a golden age of New York city nightlife. I mean, I grew up here and I remember, I mean, I was in middle school in the 90s, and I remember seeing like the copies of The Village Voice and seeing pictures of these parties, and of course being fascinated, but also terrified of ever setting foot. It's like these exotic creatures, oh my God, I'd get eaten alive. Yeah, but, it's so uh, funny, because it feels like people had that image of New York in general back mm-hmm. then. You know, I mean, even when I arrived in 1989, I was hearing people who had been here forever saying how New York was changing, and it's not as free as it used to be, and not as wild as it used to be, and I wow. thought to myself, this place is freaking wild, what are you talking about? <laughs> You know, on Sunday I'm at church, and on Monday I'm watching Otter blow fire from her pussy. It was like, (laughs) you know, it was like this crazy place that was just full of the most pure and the most decadent all in one spot, and never once, I mean, I even got mugged twice back in the 90s, and but I never felt like 
it was dangerous. You know, it wasn't like the mugger threw me down, beat me up, and put me in the hospital. If they just pulled a knife or a gun and said, "Give me your money," and you said, "Okay," you know, and then they <laughs> left. You know, it wasn't. It was like you know, like going into H and M now. You know, it's probably it's probably more torture going into H and M and standing in line for like an hour and a half to buy a pair of socks. It was easier getting mugged in the easier, 90s. Right. It was easier letting a mugger rob me than H and M taking an hour and a half to rob me. You know. <laughs> Oh my god! But I never really, I never felt like it was dangerous. And you know, back then I was young and I was a lot skinnier, a lot more naive. I was this fragile little gay boy who came from a small town, and you know, I wore a dress for a living. So I was out in drag, you know, probably three, four nights a week, you know, going out or working, whatever I was doing. And you know, I lived in Alphabet City, the Lower East Side, which back then was considered the most dangerous neighborhood in New York, and it wasn't. I mean. You knew the homeless lady at the corner living in the Frigidaire box, and you brought her food and leftovers and gave her money. You knew the crackheads living next door that you were just like, oh, God, are they going to turn their music up full blast tonight? I mean, everybody was a little bit sort of off the beaten track and definitely people who didn't fit in wherever they were from, and they Mm -hmm. ran to escape from it. But it was sort of like a communal bond between everybody that we all wanted to get away from wherever we were from. Mm. And we wanted to be here. And nobody kind of messed with each other. It was very, I mean, it sounds weird to think like some crackhead and some homeless lady and some fag from middle America can all live in one place and really not bother each other and live in harmony but it sort of was I feel more harmonious back then than it is now wow I feel like now it's more transient and the people that are coming here to live now are the people we all wanted to escape so well, now they're the only ones can, who can afford to live here now yeah and it's sad because it's like now I'm living in a place where I do fear going out sometimes dressed in a crazy outfit or looking too freaky because someone's gonna you know beat me up I mean even on the show Glee which is like a cheesy rendition of what New York City is all about. It's, you know, just as bad as Sex in the City that I feel was like singly responsible for ruining New York. <laughs> but, you know, even on Glee, they said that crime, hate crimes were up in New York. And I can only attribute that to the fact that all these middle American nine to five corporate unworldly closed minded assholes are moving here now and taking my city away. And I've been battling for like five years internally of whether or not I even want to stay here. And the only thing that keeps me here is the fact that I know so many great people still, you know, so many great people are still here and they are still struggling to be creative and perform and do art. And, you know, it's just disappointing now that these people who are in my eyes legends Mm -hmm. when it comes to performance or creativity or the underground are now working, you know, at some of the cheesiest places in town you know just to make a living i feel like new york nightlife entertainment has gone from this incredibly inspiring outrageous underground to basically tourist entertainment like when you go to p-town or key west or on a gay cruise or lucky chang's you know it's like it's kind of like that even lucky chang's had more of an edge than like lips i mean i love both those places because they employ queens but, you know, Lips was very much like showboat performances. You know, mm-hmm. at least Chang's, those girls had a little bit of an edge because they were a little crazy. <laughs> but, um, you know, all those places are even suffering too. You know, like those places are becoming a thing of the past, you know, wow. with the homogenization of gays into, you know, 
heterosexual mainstream, mainstream society. Yeah. You know, I have nothing against straight. I do have a lot against straight edged. <laughs> Good clarification. I, I love people that aren't straight in that sense of the word. You know, I like people that like to push the envelope and and sort of open your mind up to thinking differently about someone, somewhere, some thing, you know. Yeah. I think that's what was cool about New York is that I came here very naive and within like, you know, three or four years I was opened up to so many different cultures and ways of expression and people's ideals and what people found to be correct and incorrect and you know and and you just learn like okay have your opinion and stand by it but know that it's just your opinion and yeah. it's you know if someone else doesn't like it it's fine mm -hmm. you know I find that um, social media has really made people feel like their opinion their opinions are so important and they're really not Absolutely. it's just your opinion you know and if you want to air it because it makes you feel better then great I just hate when people jump on board onto someone's opinion and it becomes this whole argumentative hateful debate when it's like babe it's an opinion yeah. you know and unless that person we is a close them. friend of yours mm -hmm. and you feel like maybe they're saying something that's detrimental to their health then you know Send them a private message. You know? <laughs> I get so upset when I see these arguments go on on the social They're media. They're very self-serving. They really are. And, you know, even when I'm torrenting, I'll go on a, a page of a movie I'm going to download and steal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking um, as an artist. <laughs> speaking as an artist. You know, and I look on there, and they, they're arguing about the content of the movie or someone's opinion of the movie. And it's just like, oh, my God, you can't get away from people's opinions on social media and it's just it's torture yeah it's torture if they spent more time trying to understand people oh than fight God. people make an effort exactly yeah they might learn the something about themselves cultivate something called compassion yeah. but it's just you know it's like new york back then when i first started doing nightlife and i first got here i really did feel like i had died and gone to heaven yeah, tell me about that, because you said you came in 1989. Where are you from originally? Well, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, wow. Which was a beautiful place. It's, I still love going there and going to the mountains and the hot springs. And it's, mm. it's. I mean, I'm an outdoorsy person, even though I've lived in New York for so many years. Really? I love going to lakes. I love it. I mean, I don't do it as much as I'd like to, because it's not that accessible around here. But, um, yeah, I grew up, you know, pretty much in nature. When you wanted to do something, when I was young, you went up to the hot springs and drank beers with your friends or smoked pot or, you know, you did things like that because there was no nightclubs or gay life or, you know, we weren't out back then. We were hiding, you know, still so that we didn't get killed and beat up. <clears throat> and I had, you know, a lot of negative experiences there. I mean, I had a father who I didn't get along with who was abusive. And, you know, just that town alone was very, very Catholic run, you know, it was run by very strict Catholics. I lived across the street from the rectory, the convent, the school, and the church. Holy shit. Yeah, so I went, and I went to the school, I went to the church, I was an altar boy, you know, but my wow. parents were divorced, so then I would live with my mom one year, and I would be, you know, with my mom, who was a Baptist, and she didn't go to church all the time, she didn't, it wasn't a big thing for her, so my life was very different back and forth with my parents growing up. But in New Mexico and Santa Fe, they were so homophobic there. I mean, you couldn't tell anybody. I mean, I remember my father telling me once about a co-worker of his had a son who was very flamboyant. And my dad pulled me aside after like a company picnic and said, you watch out for boys like that. Stay clear of them. 
Wow. And I just remember thinking in my head, like, holy shit, he can never know I'm like that. That was your <laughs> Right. So oh I stayed gosh. in the closet for a very long time. And when I was 16, and I really didn't have a lot of friends growing up because I moved so much back and forth between my parents. So I always was going to a different school. Yeah, that must have been really, I mean, getting uprooted like that. Like it was really, back and forth. really hard. I mean, I love it now because now it makes me so comfortable to mm-hmm. be in any foreign environment with strangers that I don't know, which is why working nightlife is so easy for me because it's easy for me to be around, you know, new people and, um, and, um, you know, things like that. It's Mm -hmm. made it easy, but it was hard because I couldn't make lifetime friendships with people and I couldn't, you know, have that. Like I have friends now who are like, Oh yes, we've been friends since we were five. You know, I didn't have that really. I mean, I have cousins I grew up with and stuff like that. But when I was 16, I um, met my best friend and his parents and they sort of like became my secondary family. Mm. And my best friend was a painter he was dyslexic, so he didn't do really well in school, but he was like this gifted painter. And um, his mother really supported that. Mm. And as I got to know him, I realized, God, his mom is so cool. Like, you know, he showed me pictures when he was in like third grade wearing tutus to school and crazy stuff like that. That I was like, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, he wore a tutu to school. You know, like my dad grounded me for wearing a pair of checkered pants he didn't like you know whoa oh yeah my dad was very strict he didn't want me wearing anything he didn't like you know and then when I got in trouble I was grounded from things I loved like theater I would I was always part of theater I'd be grounded from plays like my my teacher and director would be like you can't ground him he's got a role in the play tonight and it opens I'm like I'm sorry he can't do it holy shit he would do crazy stuff like that he was such an asshole so when I met this family it was like a really it was like a whole different world for me of, Mm -hmm. of acceptance and she really taught me about, like, you know, she was always telling us, be careful of AIDS, you know, because that's, you know, in the 80s was when the gay cancer was running rampant and, oh, you know, man. belonged to the gays only and it was all our fault. So that was another terrifying thing, being gay. And at that age, it was like, shit, now we're responsible for killing each other through having sex. Oh, it really is a sin. You know, all this crazy shit going Jesus. through your head. And, um, and you know, she also introduced us to things like Divine, she would wow. show John Waters films. Like she was very, Amazing. she was very, very cool. And she would take us thrift shopping. She would always have his friends over. Like it was very, it was a very intense time in my in my life because I was also dating my best friend's cousin. Oh. And she <laughs> was the hottest girl in school at the time. So all the jocks and all the all the hot boys wanted her, you know, and of course I love that because whenever I was with her, I was with all these hot guys that were trying to get at her, you know, and she was always invited to the hot parties and hear her little awkward, you know, closeted gay boyfriend was going with it all this. So it was, it was a really crazy, crazy time. I ended up during that time, like leaving my parents' house and, you know, having a lot of problems running away and stuff. And my dad, I remember sending me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist told my father that, you know, your son basically hates you and he's never going to be healthy living with you because he's, he can't be himself. So my mom at the time couldn't take me because she was financially struggling. So my aunt and uncle at the time took me in. And I only lived with them for like six months before I ran away again. Oh, my gosh. And, um, and it wasn't even really like they weren't really mean. They were great, you know. But my best friend's mom had been taking me to gay bars. <laughs> 
How old are you at this point? Sixteen. Oh <laughs> listen to the reasoning behind it. That's even funnier. Um, my mom would take me to, I mean, my friend's mom would take me to these gay bars with my best friend and his siblings who were all older. They were all already over 21. And they would have 80s nights. And it was the only oh place in God. town that you could hear new wave and 80s music. Because back in the 80s, we didn't have social media where you could get the songs right away, you know. And most of the record stores didn't carry, you know, the Thompson Twins and Lena Lovitch and Nina Hagen and all these cool 80s bands that we liked, you know. Mm-hmm. So they didn't play it anywhere in town other than the gay bars on one night a week. They had their 80s night. Oh, my God. So she would take us because well, in New Mexico, you can go into a gay bar if you're escorted by your parent or or an adult that oh, wow. yeah so you can go you know so we would go sometimes they would be strict and not let us in but we always had a plan like the whole family and friends would go to the back patio and they would stand by the fence and we would jump over the <gasps> fence into the group oh so God. we always had a way to get in so we were going to this and my aunt and uncle knew that every Thursday I went to this gay bar for this new wave night and they ended up telling my parents and my mom flipped out and was like calling my father and saying, oh, we got to knock some sense in him. He's turning into a homosexual and blah, 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 blah. And which was really funny because me and my mom were always really close. And, mm-hmm. and then I hated my dad because he was an asshole. But then it kind of tables turned. Then my dad started calling me and saying, I don't care what you are. You could be whoever you are, blah, blah, blah. And I, in my head, I'm thinking he's just doing that because he wants to be opposite of my mom because they always had to be opposite of each other they were always in a battle it was never fun with them Mm. so I just hated both of them at that point so I ended up running away again and um, I got a job at a place called Schlotzky's which was like a fast food sandwich place and I met these born again Christians who were at a new wave bar night that we were at and uh, turns out they ran a um thing called Dunn's Dancing Machine, which was like DJs you could rent for private parties. And so they took me on board as like a helper, and I ended up moving into their house and becoming roommates with these straight guys who were born-again Christians, and then they had me going to church with them and becoming born-again. And it was the weirdest experience of my life. I don't think I've ever cried so much in my life as I did at Born Again Church. Because all you would do is hold your hands and sing these, you know, songs with everybody and everyone would cry and hug. And it was almost like therapy for me, I think. Like all the shit I went through as a kid, just kind of these born again Christians kind of helped me out of it. And I did that for about a year. And one of my good friends, I had two really good friends at the time besides my best friend. Who, um, there was a group of like 10 of us that really hung out together a lot. And we st- a lot of us still t- stay in touch. Um, but anyway, uh, my friend Eve and my friend Tony um, were big um, LSD users. They were taking hits of acid at school. They were dropping acid everywhere. And we were always like, they're so crazy. They're so crazy. Well, my friend Eve comes over one night to the Born Again Christian house. And she's crying. And she says to me, Michael, this is not you. We miss you. This is not you. I said, listen, I'm still the same person. I just, you know, I'm at a weird place in my life. I just don't want to act on my gayness. Mm. I just want to be a good person. You know, I think I was going through like this, you know, bringing in my head what my dad said. Kind Mm. of like, you know, watch out for boys like that. And I was struggling against, and I was dating my best, one of my best friend's girl, you know, a cousin. And she was a girl. And I, you know, I didn't know what the fuck was going on with my life, you know. And meanwhile, like nobody had a problem with me being gay. It was all internal, you Mm. know. 
So she came over one night and she's like, this isn't you. Please just drop acid with me one time, one time so we can talk together. And I was like, uh, okay, but you have to shut up because my roommates are asleep. Let's go. And I just remember one of my roommates who was this um, girl and I can't remember her name now. It'll come to me maybe later. But she had gone out of town and left me the keys to her Volkswagen Rabbit. And I said, okay, but we can't stay here because I don't want them to know I'm doing acid. You know, I don't want them to kick me out of the house. You know, meanwhile, they were like backsliding is what they called it. They were backsliding all the time, like, you know, hooking up with girls and coming back and asking for forgiveness and saying they, they were backsliding. And it was, a, it was so chaotic, even in the Christian house with sexuality in general, oh you know, God. that I fit right in. You know? <laughs> oh so anyway, God. so her and I get in this car and we drop this acid and like an hour later, I'm tripping my brains out so hard on acid and I had never done it before. So I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to take you home and I've got to get back to my house. This is too much. I'm tripping my brains out. And she's laughing and laughing and laughing. And I'm like, i got to take you home. And I drove her home. And I remember on the way there telling her, we got to slow down. I'm going to get a ticket. And she's like laughing. You're only going five miles an hour. Oh my God. Because I was tripping so hard that everything was just tracked. Oh my God. So I don't know how, I mean... It must have been God at that point. If yeah. there is a God, it must have been God. But he got me to her house, dropped her off, and then I got home to my house, which was really only like 10 blocks away. But oh it seemed God. like it took like three hours, of four course, hours. Of course. So I got back to my room, and I just laid down in my bed, tripping my brains out all night long. And then the next day, I started packing. Wow. And I moved out of that house. Oh, my gosh. And I moved back in with my grandmother, and I... This was... And... um I, I called my grandmother and I said, you know, I, I need to stay with you for a little while and I need to figure things out. She was like, fine. So I moved in with her. I got a job at another restaurant where I met this crazy Italian couple, Matt, um, Nat and Darlene Como, and they ran a little Italian bistro in downtown Santa Fe called Como's Italiano. And I got a job waiting tables there. And within weeks, I was like the manager. I was running the show. They fell in love with me. They were wow. like, you're amazing. And I just became... Their son, basically. They loved me. And uh, after working with them for like a year and a half, I think almost two years, they sat me down one day because they knew how miserable I was there and how my dad was just this monster. And mm. They could see that I was constantly going through whatever, struggles, you know. And they sat me down and they said, listen, Michael, you need to get out of here. You need to go to New York City. They will love you there. You will love it there. You will feel right at home there. You're so smart and creative and fun. You are wasting your life here in this town. And you need to get wow. the fuck away from your father. And I was like, okay. Wow. So they threw a big party for me. They invited all my friends, my family. It was the first time my mom and dad were in the same room together, I think, since I can't remember. And they invited customers from the restaurant. They invited the employees. They raised $3,000 for me. Oh and gosh. bought me a round trip ticket. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, three thousand dollars today, but I mean, back then in nineteen eighty nine, three thousand dollars was a chunk of change, you know. So everybody at the dinner party that they had for me, which they rented this restaurant and they had food and drinks for everybody for free, like they really, I mean, it was like my coming out party. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. And they raised money for me and bought me a ticket, and I just remember arriving here and being like, "Holy shit, this is New York!" And I sat outside on a fire escape on First Avenue with my friend Dudley who had opened up his apartment to me because when I got here, the place I was supposed to come to, which is a total New York story, 
the person didn't move out of the room that was available. Oh, so they're like, oh, he's not moving out for a few more months. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I'm here. I'm ready to move in. And they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, and this, that's such a New York thing. Even today, finding a place to live in New York is like a nightmare. It's the biggest nightmare. So anyway, so um, I sat on the stoop and I just looked outside at the traffic all night to like six in the morning. And I thought to myself, like, God, this city really never does sleep. Wow. You know, and it was, and I can't even tell you what I saw. I saw people driving by. I saw police, you know, sirens going by. I saw a guy in his car jacking off and going around the block. I called my friend. I'm like, look at this guy. He keeps going around the corner and he's jacking <laughs> off in his car. It was just like crazy shit going on in New York City. And I mean, since then, I've had so many crazy experiences here. Like, I mean, I worked at Florent. Do, do, oh, do you yeah. remember Florent? R.I.P. Florent. Well, once I left that fire escape and the people that rented the room felt so guilty because I came all the way out and had nowhere to go. They're like, you can stay on our couch till this guy moves out. So I ended up moving into Midtown onto a couch and I got one of my first jobs was Florent working the graveyard shift. So I would oh show up God. at like midnight and I'd work till like seven, eight in the morning. And um, I remember thinking, this is crazy. I'm working all night, you know, like I'd never been up like all night other than my first night sitting on the fire escape, you know, you go to bed at nine, 10 o'clock, you know what I'm saying? Where I grew up because everything closes. Mm -hmm. So um, I started working at Florent and it was fun. I met a lot of cool people and they would send me every morning to go get bagels around the corner at the bagel place that of course is no longer there. That neighborhood's completely different now yeah but they would send me to go get bagels for the breakfast and i would go around the corner within that walk i would see two guys fucking in between two meat trucks that were parked you know out waiting for the staff to come in loaded up with meat and deliver it because it was the meat packing literally literally i remember slipping packing. on the fat in yeah. the sidewalks and how bad uh, it there was smelled. a lot of meat packing going on there <laughs> after hours too so i would walk by a truck see two guys totally fucking in between and be like oh my god those, those guys are having sex then I would walk around to the bagel place and the payphone would ring and answer and they'd be like, do you have a big dick? And I'd be like, oh my God. Then I'd get the bagels and go back and see the guys fucking again and deliver the bagels. And this was like my morning routine. And I thought to myself, you know, and still I'm having these internalized struggles with being gay, even though I'm like in New York and I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And um, I worked at Florent for maybe a few weeks before I was like, I can't do this graveyard shift anymore. You know, it was just too hard not seeing any of the daylight, you know, sleeping yeah. all day. So then I, I, um, the people I was living with, uh, my friend Leslie was actually one of the people in the house and she's the one that said, come, we have a room for you. And she was the one that was like, Oh, I need to move out. And she was the one that made everybody take me in and let me live on the couch. And I ended up making friends with everybody that lived in the house and they were all straight, cool, fun kids, you know, just finishing college, starting their way in the city. There was a couple that lived in one room and um, a, a, a girl who to this day, I think she was a lesbian, but she was great fun. We got along really well. And then my friend Leslie upstairs and then another couple in the other room. So finally, one of the couples moved out and I moved into the room and my friend Leslie ended up hooking me with the job at the Royalton Hotel, which was uh, Ian Schrager Hotel. And Ian Schrager is 50% yes. of Studio 54 right. with Steve Rebell. And they had opened hotels together until Stephen Rebell died of HIV. And then Ian Schrager kept running them. So for me, it was like, I'm going to work at an Ian Schrager hotel. So it was really fun. So I went in there, lied through my teeth. Um, I had spent, throughout this story that I'm telling you, there was like an, a eight-month period that I ran away to L.A. 
Oh, um, wow. Yeah, this was before Born Again Christian and all that stuff. I'd run away to L.A. for a few months, and that didn't work out. And a lot of drama happened with that, and I came back and stayed with my dad, and my sister tried to kill herself, and oh, my Jeez. family was a mess. Yeah, that's a whole other story. This, my sexual awakening story, is what I'm telling you about. <laughs> So anyway, so, you know, I still having struggles with that. So working at the World Hotel was great because everybody that worked there was gay pretty much. They're like pretty straight girls and gay guys. It was like fag hags and fags basically working there. A few straight guys, but most everybody else that was waiting tables there was gay. And then you're waiting on people like Adam Wintour, Tim Curry, Karen Wheeler, Sandra Bernhardt, like all the cool people I'd always wanted to meet were sitting at tables and I was waiting on them, you know. And I'm not a starstruck person. I've never been one of those people that's like, oh, my God. You know, I'm very cool with celebrities because they're just people to me. Mm -hmm. But I admire what they've done. So it was really nice to get to meet a lot of those people and, you know, see them in, in real time. And the best part about those days is that all of us that worked together, we would work the breakfast shift from, like, you know, we'd get there at, like, 5.30 in the morning. And we'd work to, like, 3 or 4 in the afternoon. We would end up like at four o'clock leaving work and that would be the beginning of our night out. Oh my God. And we would literally go out till like four in the morning, go home, shower, and go to work and wait tables. Then go home, take a disco nap and do it all again the next time. So we basically became partiers that would go to work right after the club closed and wait tables. It was crazy. But we went to great parties. We went to the Palladium. We went to... Uh, all Larry T's parties, we went to the Suzanne Barsh parties, we went to all the great parties, you know, and that's when we discovered that we had to work looks, we had mm -hmm. to look good, you know, so I remember one night we dressed up and we went to Mars, which was also in the meatpacking, it was like this three, four floor club that had different music on every floor and hot dogs for free hot dogs up on the roof and it was amazing it was like you know the club was all rickety and you know you had to be careful walking around because at any point the stairs could break and you could fall like it was awesome it was like dangerous but fun danger you know not like now where it's like so many exits and security guards that you, there's no there's no adventure when you go out anymore so Anyway, I just remember one night we went there and we had the best time. And the next day we went to work so hung over and waited tables, you know, for eight hours. And I just remember thinking, God, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's when Halloween came around and I decided to uh, get in drag. Oh, my gosh. And so age check-in, how old are you at this point? I'm like 22. Okay. 23. I have no concept of time since I've been living in the dark <laughs> for 25 years. <laughs> Early 20s. I was in my early 20s, and I decided at Halloween I was going to go and drag. So me and all my friends that worked together, we all decided, all us boys, gay boys, were going to go and drag. So we all got our drag looks together, and we went out to Palladium. And that's the night that really kind of was a turning point for me in New York. Because mm -hmm. I got, even though I was probably the most untogether awful drag queen with thick eyebrows and a total wig line, and I was using lipstick for, like, eyeshadow, blush, and lipstick. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had no clue what even makeup was. <laughs> and uh, But I got so much attention from everybody. Everyone was talking to me and coming up to me. And, you know, if you watch Wigstock, the movie, I, I tell a little story about that in there. But it changed my life at that point because after that, I decided I'm going to pursue this drag thing and see if I can make money doing this and make a living so I don't have to wait tables anymore mm -hmm. at 6 in the morning. So I discovered this little party in the East Village called Channel 69, and it was run by Linda Simpson, who oh um, it was her first party 
And um, she was the hostess of the night, and she would book drag performers to do a show. So every night at 1 in the morning, there'd be like a 20, 30-minute drag show. And it was one of the few places where they had drag shows like that other than the legendary Boy Bar, which was amazing. I mean, you would go, it was like going to a Broadway show there. Their shows were so well put together, so amazing. The Pyramid was more the alternative, experimental, crazy queens. And Boy Bar was a little bit more polished and, you know, professional shows. They were edgy and fun and still Lower East Side, but, you know, their wigs were perfect, their makeup was perfect, the costumes were perfect. And then the Pyramid was like, you know, all the crazy performance artsy drag queens doing all their weird shit. So I would go there and hang out. And uh, one day I just went up to her and totally told her a big fat white lie and was like, I'm a drag performer from New Mexico and I would love to perform at your party. And uh, she had this night called, she didn't say anything at first. She just said, saying, okay, okay. Then a few months later, she had this night called New Queens on the Block which is a takeoff of New Kids on the Block. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and what it was, it was like sort of a, a variety show of new queens that had never performed at her stage before. And um, I remember performing my first number there, and it went over so well that she started booking me regularly. Wow. And within, within like a year of doing drag, I had my own party, called Hippie Chicks, which was at, a, at Crowbar. I then started hosting at the Pyramid on Saturdays, and I got asked to MC a party called Squeezebox that year. So I became the MC of Squeezebox, and they filmed the movie Wigstock. Yes, which is a spectacular movie. Yeah, so it was really kind of a... That's it was, huge. It was like a catapult from waiting tables to all of a sudden becoming one of the most known drag queens in New York in like a year. It was crazy. That's incredible. It was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, I got a lot of love from a lot of people, but I got a lot of, I got a lot of shade <laughs> from the old school queens who felt like I didn't deserve, sure. you know, to be in Wigstock the movie or to be in, you know, this or doing that. You know, there was a lot of weirdness going on, and I was just having fun. Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice the shade until it started coming back at me. You know, I was just having a good time and being myself and. You know, I'm a very trustworthy person. I'm a good friend. And if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. You know, if I can't make it, I'll let you know and we'll work it out. I'm not like a mean, shady person, you know. So right. when all that stuff started happening to me, it started making me a little bitter. You know, I became more skeptical of people and more afraid to, like, take chances and do stuff. And it was just, you know, I, I think I did Squeezebox for maybe six years and then um, I just, I got disillusioned by the drag scene. I was like, you know, I'm not feeling this anymore because we used to be such a close community in my eyes. And then all of a sudden all this weirdness went down and it just made my world negative. Mm -hmm. You know, went from a very positive, amazing experience to like this weird, competitive, negative thing that I wasn't used to and I didn't like. Mm -hmm. Because as far as I was concerned, 90% of my friends that I hung out with outside of nightlife and in nightlife, we all supported each other in whatever we did. And we went to each other's shows and parties. And, you know, we didn't work at six different clubs a week. We worked and hosted one party. And if we did something else on another party, it was different. So if I was the MC at Squeezebox, then I was the DJ at this party. Right. You know, I didn't do the same job at all the clubs that kept it different. And everybody had their own parties and their own identities. And we all supported each other. But once it turned a little bit bitter for me, it's hard for me as a person 
to get past that, you know, so it sort of sours the pot and then I can't eat the soup, you know? Yeah. So I kind of started looking to do other things and um, I quit Squeezebox, I quit doing drag and I became the manager of La Nouvelle Justine's, which was the first ever S&M themed restaurant. Oh my and God. it was opened by the same owner as Lucky Chang's, Hane Jason, and she approached me about managing, and of course, you know, I'm a whirlwind of ideas, so I ended up sitting down with her, and I ended up helping her design the interiors, designing the fetish menus, the fetish wow. drinks. I helped her design a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, she had a chef take care of the the food and of course she had you know dealt with all the other stuff but as far as the aesthetic and the environment I was 90% of the design of that place and um, it was a huge hit I not only trained all the staff the waiters were all dominance and the busboys and stuff were all submissives and I gave them a 101 on oh how that works my so when they were waiting tables the waiters would be like slave pick that plate up and you know they were treated like that at work and some of them had a hard time with it and would get upset at the end of the night and I'd be like babe it's an acting job don't take it personal when they're treating you like shit yeah. you know and uh, I had real mistresses that I hired from dungeons to do shows and they would do spankings and floggings and humiliation shows. We had drinks called the Copperphiliac, which was a chocolate, oh which was a chocolate <laughs> martini. You know, it was it was a, a playful play on fetish, but it was also wow. authentic in a lot of ways. That I had real mistresses working there. Our opening night was a huge success. It was written up in magazines all over the world. The place made $1.5 million the first year. We had so many celebrities there. I mean, everyone from, like, Joan Rivers to Nina Hagen came through there. Wow. Marilyn Manson, you know, Debbie Harry, you know, Justin Bonds. All the cool people came there, and it was really fun, and I had a blast running it. But, lo and behold, the Giuliani era had begun, uh. so... Um, the owner was approached by the city saying that she could no longer have girls in pasties and guys in chaps and they could no longer do spankings and no longer do this and that. What? Right. And instead of fighting for it, she just gave in and said, I don't feel like fighting the government for this. So she said, these are the new rules. So I gave my two weeks notice oh after being God. there for two years. And it lasted for a few more years as sort of a cheesy bachelorette party S&M joke restaurant. What grounds did they approach her on? I didn't get into it with her because I wasn't the legal end of the restaurant. Right. I was the I was the idea person. I was the manager. Yeah. I was the person who came up with everything. And I was the connection to all these people that were working there. You had beautiful people working there. They were all my friends from nightlife and other places. You know, everyone was gorgeous. I mean, we had so many porn stars and porn directors. and I mean, people of adult industries, whether it was music or fashion or whatever, they were there. Mm -hmm. It was phenomenal. Wow. It, was, it was world famous within a year. So after being there for two years and then it becoming sort of cheesy, sort of Chuck E. Cheese of S&M, I left. And um, that was a hard time for me because I went from making money and working somewhere that I loved. And I had this sort of idea about myself in my head that everything I did had to be cool you know I couldn't work there anymore because it wasn't going to be cool mm. you know I had so much integrity back then um, so then I decided I'd put my dress back on and Hayne moved me from London Epstein's to Lucky Chang's where I went from being running a cool place to being a cheesy drag queen um, emceeing a show to entertain all the bachelorettes that came there and stuff and that was a really hard time for me because I felt like I was 
you know, too cool to be doing this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I needed work. And at the same time, I was making like $1,000 a night. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that, I was like, wow, this is what people mean that they're not too proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at that point, I became yeah. ain't too proud to beg. That was my ain't too proud to beg moment. So, mm-hmm. you know, I did that. I mean, it was still miserable, you know, because you weren't treated well by the manager of Lucky Chang's. He really treated the girls like a monster. I didn't want to bring his name up because I don't want to give him any bad press, but... He was a monster, and everybody hated him, and he was talked down to you like, you're stupid, you're this, you're that. Oh, my God. Where the hell have you been? This show's late. What the fuck are you doing? You know, he talked, I mean, I super felt like, yeah, something. super abusive, and I could handle it because I was tough, but I just remember times sitting at home with my boyfriend at the time and putting my makeup on in tears, being like, I can't take it tonight. <laughs> no. Wow. And he'd be like, pull it together. It's just a job. I'm like, I know, but it's like an emotional fucking roller coaster of having to deal with the abuse and not get upset about it. And, you know, and I too was outspoken. My jokes were politically incorrect and I would always get in trouble for something. And I remember there was this one table of Jewish, um, Jewish people sitting down eating and I was messing with them and joking with them and, you know, all the Jewish jokes that I knew. And then at one point I was like, I'm going to leave you all alone because you had enough trouble at Auschwitz. And that was it. Just the mention of Auschwitz got them so upset. And, I mean, I had been joking with the blacks and the gays and the Jersey folks and saying nasty stuff, you know, really politically incorrect, just as bad. I mean, and I didn't say anything other than the word Auschwitz. And all I said was, you had a hard enough time there. I'm going to leave you guys alone now. It was sort of my segue out of messing with them. It meant nothing. I meant not, no harm. Right. But the woman was such an asshole, and she just started attacking me and, like, going to the manager, and the manager didn't even take my side and say, you know, he's a comedian. He didn't mean anything by it. He wasn't, like, dismeaning it. And she pushed me to the point where I got so angry with her that I walked up to the table, and I was like, you know what? I don't even believe it happened. (gasps) I believe you all just make it up because you want attention. Oh, Oh, I was... Because I was like, she really wants me to take it there. I'll give her something to be mad about. Because I was so hurt because I'm not that person. I'm a comedian. I'm making jokes of all the things that people oppress us for. Let's laugh about it and make a joke of it. Because it's a joke. You know, it wasn't meant to be an attack on them. But when she attacked me, I like went back to the table and I was like, I don't believe it happened. And then I went back a little bit later and I was like, you know what? I just want you to know that I know it did happen. And Jews weren't the only ones that were killed. So were the gays. So were all my gay people back then and does anyone ever talk about that no no one talks about that so don't think you're the only one carrying around your little cross and the only martyrs around and I said I don't appreciate you getting me into trouble and yelling at my manager for something because I'm a good person and you don't know me and we were laughing together up until that moment that you made a big deal out of it so go fuck yourself bitch and I was so mad and angry and then that night, my manager was like, we have to suspend you for two weeks. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I was like, really? After the abuse I take from this manager, now I'm getting abused by this customer who just wanted to start a fight. You know, she just wanted a fight because there was no reason to make that a bigger deal than it was, you right. know? So at that moment, I left and I went home. And you know what? Those two weeks off were so nice mm. not having to deal with that abusive asshole that when my two weeks were up and they called me to put me on the schedule, I told them, no, thank you. At that moment, I realized that my integrity was worth more than $1,000 a night. Yeah. I don't care if I was making $10. 
I did not want to be abused anymore by him or those stupid bachelorettes that go in there. Even though there was a lot of nice ones that came back like the next six months with their other girlfriend and be like, for Michael, oh my God, we're back. We love you. Our other Aww. girlfriend's getting married and we had to bring her to see you because I would have fun with them. I'd make nasty yeah. jokes. I would treat the bachelorettes like hoes. <laughs> I would give them the whole bachelorette experience, you know, because I'm in my career in nightlife, I'm an overly sexual person. And that's why I love nightlife, because when you're a repressed gay person growing up, all you want to do is come out and be sexual. Yeah. And I learned a lot about sexuality through my drag and through nightlife. And I, I learned that it's not a bad thing. It's not a dirty thing. Mm -hmm. And it made me resent all religions, because all religions put homosexuality in a box that we shouldn't do it when you know what instinctually we want to have sex men want to have sex to breed and women want to have sex to reproduce it's in our genes okay women are supposed to have sex with multiple partners in one night because the whole point is for them to open up and get seeded and seeded and seeded until one of those sperms impregnates them so it's totally natural for a woman to want to have more than one partner even in one night mm -hmm. okay and it's totally natural for a man to get horny for different women or men because they're born to breed. They're not born to be monogamous and in a relationship and be married. Mm -hmm. That's not instinctually what we're here for. Absolutely. Sex is innocent. It's innocent. There's so no, it's what we no do guilt. with it and how we deal with it that defines us as people. So if you want to be a purist and you want to meet someone and have sex once a year and that's your relationship with your sexuality and your person, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But don't inflict upon people that want to have sex every single day with the same person or multiple people if they want you know so so my drag and and all this stuff opened my eyes up to sexuality and and a lot of how we're repressed with it so yeah. once i had left that oppressive environment i was like okay i want to get back into a world where i can feel free so that's when i put my party together at opaline i put my area party together and I hired a bunch of friends and I opened up my own party and that's when I became a promoter. Mm. And, and so, when was that? This was in the early 2000s. Okay. And I had done other parties. I mean, most of my parties prior to area were sex parties. Like I had a party called John Street where the Scissor Sisters performed at. And while they were singing on stage at the bar were naked guys getting their dick sucked by customers. <laughs> and downstairs was the back room where people were having sex. And, you know, it was like a crazy party. But that's what New York parties were like back then. Mm -hmm. You know, but that was the last party of that kind that I ever did because those things were just getting smashed out, you know, Four to six months after you started it, the city was on the club. Yeah, because by this point, I and mean, what was it? What was it like when Giuliani, like when the cabaret laws were coming in? And you want to know what it was like? It was so bad that I was on stage at Squeezebox and all my parties that I worked at, saying, "Are you a drug addict? Does your life mean nothing? Do you want to die tomorrow and afraid no one will even know you existed? Come see me after the show. I've got a gun. I want you to kill Giuliani. <laughs> I mean, literally." That's how bad it was wow. to the point where I was publicly on stage asking people if they would shoot him and assassinate him because he was assassinating my city. Yeah. It wasn't that I wanted to be a murderer. It was self-defense. Yeah. You know, and he did. He assassinated my city. You can look at the Squeezebox documentary or any interviews with me back then. And I say a thousand times to people. We must not let Giuliani continue in office. We must do everything we can. This is before social media. Oh if I had God. had social media, maybe I could have stopped him. But 
I was out protesting in front of the mayor's office. I was out handing out flyers saying, don't vote for Giuliani. He's going to destroy our city. He's going to turn our city into a big strip mall. He's going to turn our place into a, a town that we don't want to live in. We're now going to be the visitors. We're now going to be the people that are just here as guests. We're no longer going to be the people that live here. And this is our city. This is not going to be our city anymore. And sure enough, that's what happened. New York's a big strip mall now. It doesn't belong to all of us faggots and freaks and sexually liberated people anymore. It belongs to all these fucking conservative asshole nine to five people that come here and you know litter. Yeah, like corporate interest and yeah, and they they, they they litter, they they harass, they they criticize people. Then all these fucking kids that come here that are entitled, whose parents have money and send them to NYU, and all their parents are paying their rents. They none of these people have any idea of what it means to struggle or to be creative or to make their way in the world. They're, they're, all these people that are here now are just these entitled assholes. You know, I sit in the subway and I watch them litter and I watch them, you know, talk down about people and criticize each other and. You know, and I just think, God, I remember the days where you rode the subway and you made friends on the subway home or you made a hookup on the way home or, you know, it was always a positive experience or, or if something crazy did happen, it was because someone like completely went nuts. Like mm -hmm. it wasn't like this feeling of like aloneness. Yeah. I was going to say isolation or sort of it's like very isolating, but also at, at, at almost isolation out of something around conformity. I mean, fear of standing out differently. I mean, that, that, that. I mean, what you termed as middle America, which I and I'm not a hater, believe no, me. No, 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 absolutely, at absolutely. All. I, middle America is great. They they want to live there. They want to repress there. That's that's fine. Go for it. But yeah. this was the one city that we had. This was the one city in the U.S. that we actually had that belonged to the people who came here because they wanted to be here. They wanted to get away from all that. They wanted to be free. And I don't care what anybody says about this cleanup bullshit because they didn't clean anything up. They didn't. Crime is the same. They sanitized it. It's yeah. different. They sanitized it. They put up new buildings and they brought in corporations with huge money. Exactly. So those little quaint you know, restaurants that, that were in your neighborhood that were run by a mom and pop business are gone and there's a big, beautiful, glitzy Starbucks. You know, that's all they did. They didn't get rid of the crime. They didn't get rid of the poverty. They didn't get rid of, in fact, they made poverty worse. They get on TV and claim, oh, we've made jobs for people, thousands and thousands of new jobs. Yeah, shitty jobs working at Starbucks for minimum wage where you have to work there and then you have to go live out in the fucking Bronx or in fucking 10 stops out on the Patrick in New Jersey so you can afford to live there, but then you have to come in to work at Starbucks. People that work at Starbucks don't live in the city. You know what I'm saying? It's like they, they just tell all these lies. They manipulate and they just push the poor people out. They push the artists out. They push anything that was worth anything in this neighborhood just got pushed out of all the cool neighborhoods. You know, yeah. I loved New York for the fact that you could walk down the street and there'd be a little mom and pop and then another little mom and pop and another. And you knew these people. Yeah. You knew them. I knew everybody in my neighborhood, all mm -hmm. the store owners, the deli owners, everything. Yeah. I knew my neighbors. Now with the destabilization of rents that Giuliani and Bloomberg did, people move out of my building every two fucking years. There's new people moving in next door. Yeah. It's so transient now. That's not safety. Safety is when you know your neighbors. Safety is when you're walking down the street and someone tries to beat you up or fuck with you and the owner comes out of the restaurant and says, hey, leave Michael alone yeah. because he knows you. 
Now the city has just become a big transient mall with a bunch of people we don't know coming in, paying double the money at McDonald's and going to the M&M store. And there's no culture. Yeah. People that came here in the 80s and 90s from all over the world to go to London Valdestines or to go to, you know, Area the Party or to go to Dance Interior, all these clubs, they came because New York had something they didn't. It had an underground environment of creativity and art and performance that you came here and you got inspired. Music came out of there. Celebrities that we still worship now came out of those clubs and parties. Art that we, that we saw at those clubs came out. And it's still around. You know, what is New York producing now besides garbage, besides stuff for landfill, besides bringing tourists here? You know, there still is a subculture. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. There's a bunch of amazing performers. Mm -hmm. And I go sit in the rooms of 20, 30 people and watch them while I think about, oh, look at all those people, the Madame Tussauds lined up around the corner. That's how it used to be for nightlife. Who paid $25 to set foot into that museum, by the way. That's what I'm telling you. Whereas before, you paid $10 to go into a club, and you're going to see an amazing performance by an amazing person who, in 10 years, could be the next Madonna. You know? Like, you actually saw cool stuff. You saw go-go dancers dressed in crazy outfits. You heard music you didn't hear on the radio, and you were inspired by it. You know? It was just an inspiring environment. Now, even nightlife in New York is so hard to produce because these kids that go out now, they just want to hear the same 25 songs they hear in cabs, on the radio, Mm. in H&M, in their headphones. Like, I used to like to go out to hear music that I was like, what is this song? This song is major. I love this song. And then you have to scramble. You'd have to talk to the DJ. You'd have to hope that they could give it to you on a CD next week. Or, you know, I mean, it wasn't that easy to access. Now that everything's so accessible, people are entitled and they take things for granted. They don't hunt for things either. And they don't hunt for things. That's why I'm saying I go to see a really cool show that I'm like, this show's amazing. Why isn't there a line around the corner? Well, there's not a line around the corner because they don't have big corporate money to be advertised to a million stupid fucking assholes now that are in the city who need to be where everybody's at. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go where the fun stuff is or the cool shit is. They just want to be where there's the most people. Mm -hmm. You know? So, God forbid you do leave New York City. God forbid. (laughs) God forbid. And with the subtext, so you're not bitter at all. <laughs> but God forbid you were to leave New York, where do you think you would go? Well, you know, that's the that's the question I've been asking myself for five years. That's why I'm still here. Because out of everywhere else in the U.S., New York is still the best place. It still has the coolest people. It still has the most opportunity. It's just, it's not the coolest place it was. It's it's hard to explain because people get so mad at me. They're like, oh, you're so bitter. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm no, I know I'm going on a rampage. I still love New York. And anybody to come here from any shit town America and comes here, it's going to be heaven for them too. Yeah. But what I'm saying, it's like being a kid in a candy store, walking into that candy store every single day and getting your favorite candy. And then all of a sudden you walk in and it's like a vegan veggie place. Yeah. You're like, what? Okay, this... this Where's my candy? You know, it's kind of like they took everything away and gave me something that they said was better for me. But it's not better for me because I didn't make the choice to do it, you know. So I am a little bit resentful of that. But if I were to leave and go somewhere else, I don't know. I mean, I've been taking little trips here and there to other cities and towns. And to be honest with you, like, I don't even know if it would be in the United States. I've been thinking of, you know, 
maybe going and checking out Sao Paulo, checking mm. out Thailand, checking out Mexico City. I've heard great things about Mexico City. I have a few friends that have moved there. Wow. They're like, you have to come here. They're like, it's like the East Village in the 80s and 90s. They're like, clubs are fun. Gay bars are sexy and wild. They're like, it is just, it. it's like, you know. Wow. It's Caligula. <laughs> I don't know if it is, but. <laughs> Without the death. Without the death. Well, yeah. no, in Mexico, okay. there's sorry, some... Sorry, sorry, sorry. I no, but the funny thing comment. is, right, but the, but the funny thing is, is people say that, like, it's so dangerous there. Why would you want to go? And I'm like, that's exactly what they said about New York. Exactly. And it was so fun. So now when someone says, oh, that place is so dangerous, that's first <laughs> like, on my list. <laughs> and yeah, Brazil, too. I yeah. mean, talk about a sexy, yeah. dangerous place. Well, my friend, my best friend who I've talked about earlier, Tim, he's an, a painter, and he recently just got uh, a residency in Sao Paulo. So he's been oh, there. Oh, my God. He's been there now for two winters. Yeah. And oh, he, that's the way to do it. Yeah. He's like, come stay with me while I'm there. But it just turns out every time he goes, I'm like, I can't ever leave. So right. I haven't been there yet. But he loves it there. And he says it's amazing. Oh, my God. But now people are telling me that Sao Paulo is even getting, like, priced out. Like, it's getting yes. really expensive. Yeah. And I know they're undergoing a lot of stuff with the government. And yeah. I don't know if that's... If affecting cost of living there yeah um, so i mean my whole point is like as i get older i want to live somewhere wild like new york used to be mm-hmm. and cheap like new york used to be believe me i had a two-bedroom apartment in the east village for like 900 dollars a month wow a huge two-bedroom apartment 900 dollars a month now a two-bedroom apartment in this neighborhood would be like six thousand dollars yeah yeah, I just saw... That's uh, a huge increase in just 20 years. Like, <laughs> yeah, 20 no, it's years. massive. It's massive. Yeah. I remember seeing um, in Williamsburg a three-bedroom apartment going for nine grand yeah. for one month. It's like... What? And it's hard, and that's why, like, even though I don't make a lot of money at a lot of the stuff that I do, you know, when I host certain things or I go do certain parties, I do it because I like what that person is doing. I will do something for free if I think, wow, this person's doing something cool that nobody else is doing, and it's fun, and it has potential to be great, I will do it for free, you know? A lot of stuff that I do now, I do because I have to work and I make money. I'm not saying I don't love all the parties I work at. I do. I do. But I do things that probably 20 years ago I wouldn't have done, Mm -hmm. you know? But I love everything that I do because, for me, it's also an evolution of myself to see, you know, how far... I will go, you know, to to not necessarily conform, but to accept where New York is going. Like, what will I do? Will I end up like some of my friends who just take jobs at these huge corporations and become their event planners? Or do I, you know, rebel and, you know, go move further out to another neighborhood and start a whole new residence and like some... 20 stops out on the L train, like by Coney Island, like, you know, what, <laughs> what is next, you know, if I'm going to stay, you know, but I, I definitely, I just signed another two year lease on my apartment. And the only reason I'm still in this overpriced apartment is because this building has been in litigation for over 10 years. Yeah. So they're still fighting whether or not these are going to be rent stabilized apartment or if they're going to be market value. If I, if my, I was paying, I'd be paying $4,000 right oh, now easily. for this apartment and easily. I'm only paying 3000 now. Oh my god, that's which is still, a lot. Yeah, that's still a lot. When but I moved, yeah, but that's that's yeah, typical New York. But City when I moved now. in, it was nineteen hundred dollars ten years ago. So it's gone up, to, you know, eleven hundred dollars in ten years. Jeez, it goes up a hundred dollars a year, and that's a lot. Yeah, you know, your rent should only go up three percent at the most. Yeah, every single year. So when it was nineteen hundred dollars, it should have gone up three percent at that point. All the way to now, I would be paying probably six hundred dollars less than what I pay now. 
So it's, you know, it's a struggle. I have to work a lot. Like I, you know, saying to you before we start the interview, I work from Friday night straight through nonstop double shifts till Monday night, you know, just in order for me to keep my apartment. It's not even really to save money or to have money. It's just to work. And, you know, and I didn't mind that so much in the early 90s when New York was so great that it was like, I don't care, I'll do whatever it takes to stay here, you know? And I don't have that feeling anymore. Now it's like the option is open to go somewhere else. If someone were to call me and say, hey, I've got this great apartment here and, you know, there's cool shit going on, come out, I would go in a second. I would wow. go. <coughs> Bless Excuse you. Excuse me. Pardon me. Oh. Oh, so, you know, I mean... It's it's a hard call. I have a love-hate relationship with New York now. Yeah. And I always thought I would die here. I thought they're going to just, you know, get a taxidermist and they're going to stuff me <laughs> and they're going to put me in Tompkins Square Park, you know, <laughs> because I've been in the East Village for so long, you know. That I'm From just, fixture to fixture. Right, I'll probably just die there, you know. Oh, my gosh. Become a uh, pigeon post afterwards. You know, I always thought, I really did think that I would just die in New York, but... You know, maybe it's me. Maybe I don't get out much. Maybe I need to, you know, my, a lot of my friends are like, get off your ass, put your dress back on and start, make a revolution. And I'm just like, why? You know, I mean, I don't want to be bitter, but even when I look at like a lot, not all, but a lot of the drag that's out there, it's just boring. You know, they're all doing the same thing and they're just lip syncing songs. They're not, they're not letting us in. Yeah. Does that make sense? I feel like whether you're a blessed performer a drag queen, a singer, an actor, whatever you're doing, you know, if you're a performer, you should be sharing mm. who you are on the inside, whether it's tragic or whether it's happy or whether it's something. You know, when when we would lip sync songs or sing songs back in the day of our drag heydays, every queen had their own thing. Lady Bunny was the comedian, you know, she cracked jokes and she made fun and that was her shtick, you know. Sherry Vine was like the Broadway show queen who was always doing plays and this and that. I was the rock and roll queen who was angry and all my songs were about like, rebel, fight the powers to be, you know. And everybody had their personalities and that's what made drag cool, you know. Then there was the bombshell. You know, now 90% of all these drag queens are the same and you don't even know who they are. You see a drag show of 10 queens and you're lucky if one of them stands out. And it's so sad because it's like, I know they want to stand out. Mm -hmm. I know they want to be bigger than larger than life, but they have, to, drag has to be deep. It has, to, any kind of performance has to be deep. It has to come from somewhere on the inside. And you have to have something to say. Mm -hmm. If you don't have anything to say, you might as well be, you know, Britney Spears or Lady Gaga. <laughs> yeah. no, you're going to get a lot of hate mail from this. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, because I feel like, you know, I don't I, I don't want to, you know, upset the Lady Gaga fans, but Lady Gaga is not cool. I'm sorry. You know, she she just writes songs and produces songs she thinks will make her popular or cool or edgy. She hasn't come out yet and communicated who she is as an artist at all. She's talented. Fucking majorly talented but she's not expressing anything 
I mean, so what she's saying, you know, born this way, she's just writing songs that she knows are going to appeal to her alternative audience. And she's going around in all her press saying, like, she's from the East Village. She's just that, bitch, I have lived in the East Village for 25 years. I've seen every fucking performer in this fucking neighborhood, gay or straight, performing and struggling and doing stuff. And I've seen some of them make it to mainstream. I've seen some of them become successful. But let me tell you something. Lady Gaga was never here in the East Village during any renaissance, nor did she perform at any cool parties other than the year before she became famous. I got a phone call, as did every performer and every promoter in town, saying, we have this new performer, Gaga, she's really cool and fun, can she perform for free at your party? Oh my God. Yes. So she went and did free shows at everywhere from Splash to my parties to Suzanne Barsh, whoever will take her for free, she did shows at. And her show was cute and people liked her and I was like, this girl's great. They even called me and said, we want you to emcee her record release at the Highline Ballroom. I flew in from Florida for free and emceed and we had Caswell performed, Amanda Laporte performed, tons of people performed and she performed at the end and it was her big record release. Six months later, she was a huge star. Mm. You know, but up until that year, none of us, Amanda Laporte, me, any of us cool, were hanging out with Lady Gaga in the Lower East Side or heard of her. So that pisses me off that she's trying to play off the neighborhood that all of us really cool people did make cool. All of us rockers that are here, all of us fags and freaks and drag queens and musicians that were here, everyone. I mean, all my friends that own like Niagara and all these bars around here, they were here. They were performing. They were the ones making this neighborhood cool. Lady Gaga was not, Mm -hmm. you know. And as far as Britney Spears, you know, I mean, I feel bad for her. Because she never really got a chance to be her own artist. She's been a product since she was a child. Well, yeah, I mean, she got dealt a tough hand with her parents. But, yeah. But, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to, to, I mean, to, not only to hear that, but it, it casts, I mean, the whole, I mean, it's amazing we're already at an hour, but it's talking about, like, I mean, I'm originally from Manhattan, but I live in Brooklyn now, and how, like, to say you're from Brooklyn gives you that certain street cred. Same as like, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why it's in her byline. Like, oh yeah, from the East Village. Because yeah. you guys, right. I mean, right. if you're from the East Village, I think mean, you have lived through some shit and you were a part of something that was vital and fierce and totally unapologetic and totally pushing the envelope. Yeah. And then this whole sanitized, you know, Giuliani yeah. begun Bloomberg continued, you know, crackdown on nightlife. It was awful. Happened and it, you know, it was, it was, it was an extermination. It was awful. It really was. It was like, it was like our own genocide. It was our own Auschwitz. Oh my God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Many of us didn't survive and now live in LA. Oh Jesus. <laughs> Oh, I no, do. but I mean, I'm, I'm I'm definitely like a very dramatic person, you know. Even when I speak, my friends are always like, "You're so dramatic." I'm like, "Yes, I am." <laughs> uh, what would life be without drama? You know, the good drama, the fun drama. Yeah. I do have to say though, you know, there is a lot of potential in New York, and there's a lot of cool people still here for sure, you know. And but we do need people like you to remind us of what, like, the people who created and like paved the way for us to be doing what we're doing now, but to be reminded of whence we came. Well, you know, everybody needs that. I needed it when I came here. I learned a lot from the old school queens. And even when I was back home, I learned a lot about life from older 
more knowledgeable artists and people. I mean, I was lucky to meet my best friend who was an artist because he was very connected with an art scene when, when we were very young and his mom was very cool and she took us to a lot of stuff. So we were exposed to a lot more so than most kids in our neighborhood and our ages. So we were the cool kids, you know, we were the kids that knew what was going down. And I think everybody has the potential to be that cool person. And you don't, you know, I tell kids all the time, cool is not an outfit, babe. Mm. It's a lifestyle. Either you're cool or you're not. And it's not saying you're better or worse than anybody else. It's just saying if you're a cool person, you're just open Mm -hmm. to things. And you're open to learning and exploring. That's a cool person. If you're just a critical, judgmental person and you just think you know it all and you're entitled, let me tell you something. You're not cool. (laughs) You're basic. (laughs) Oh, boom. Oh, my goodness. Um I guess that's a. I mean, I would love to end with a closing note from you. To, if <laughs> I think anything. that was it. I think that was, I think that was it. I think you just psychically finished the interview. Um, where can people find you? Well, I do have to say that I haven't Both been. Both online and off. Yeah. Well, I haven't been very good with uh, promoting or self promoting or anything lately because I, as you can tell from this interview, I'm a little lackluster when it comes to my passion for New York lately. But usually on Facebook, you can find out where I am. I'll send a message or an invite. Um, As far as socially, um, wherever there's something cool going on and fun and, you know, I mean, I'm very low key these days. I just basically kick it with friends. I spend a lot of time at home with friends. I go away with friends, you know, I mean, it's, I don't really go out that much anymore because there really isn't a lot that draws me out, mm. you know. But I'm always open to be invited to things. And just anybody out there that wants me to come and see, you think you're cool and you're fun <laughs> and you got something going on, please send me a private message on Facebook because I don't really read all of my hundreds of invites because I get so many. Of but if anybody sends me a private message and I'm off or I have time, I'm always down for checking out new things and That's awesome. and showing you'll support. At, you'll be at Fire Island this summer too, you said. I think so. I think... I'm just finishing negotiations with uh, Sip and Twirl where DJ Lena, one of my dearest friends, works. They want me to do my show tune Sundays there this summer. So I think I'll be back doing show tunes on Fire Island, which is another crazy thing that I do now that I probably wouldn't have done 20 years ago. But, But, you know, as long as something's creative and fun and, you know, let me tell you something, kids. You know, I have loved not having a real job for over 20 years where I have to get up every morning, eight o'clock and be there nine to five or any place that I have to be on schedule. You know, it's been a very freeing experience being a creative person and finding a way to make a living, even though everything I do, it's not something that, you know, maybe I thought I'd be doing, but it's way better than having to answer to somebody. You know, I answer to myself. If I don't like something or a job, I can just basically say, you know, thank you, but I'm moving on. And don't find something else. And, you know, if you're smart, you can find a way to make money without having to sacrifice your entire life. These friends of mine that work 60, 70 hour weeks, I don't know how they do it. Of course, they own their own apartments and they have cars and they travel the world. <laughs> but when, they're not when they the have office, time, exactly. right? once a year for a week. Oh you know, me, it's like maybe I don't have all the money in the world, but, you know, I save up. And if I want to leave, I leave. You know, if I don't want to go to work, I go to work. If I want to take an adventure, I take an adventure. You know, I don't have to ask permission from anybody, you know. But I do... You know, as much as I bitch about everything, I do love my work and I look forward to it. And you can ask anybody that I've worked for, DJing or whatever. I don't care if I've been there two years, five years, ten years. I rarely miss a night. 
you know, because I like my work. Yeah. You know, people are like, you never come visit me. I'm like, sorry, I work on Saturday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take off. And I'm like, mm, I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's very rare because I do. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I enjoy, you know, if I can find one young person that is cool, I am happy, you know. Because they're out there. I just think mm-hmm. that, you know, and things are changing, don't you? Uh, With yeah. social media, I think people are getting tired of social media. I think people the are realizing, yeah, I think people are really feeling like, I want to be out and about. I want to be social. I want to go out of my comfort zone and go on an adventure. Yeah, and you never know what party's around the corner from you. Or who you're going to meet. You can meet the love of your life yeah. going somewhere you've never been before. Yeah, it's all about taking those chances. Take an adventure. Go out by yourself. Yeah. Go out by oh, yourself. The These little faggots, they travel in packs now. It's like you're never going to make new friends if mm-hmm. you're traveling in your pack. Mm-hmm. Go out once in a while by yourself to a place you've never been before. Meet people. Walk up to somebody you think is cool and be like, hi, what's your name? Start a conversation the way we used to do it. You know, the reason why... Oh, my God, here I go again. The reason why there are no scenes in New York anymore, there's very few scenes, like actual scenes. Like back in my day in the 90s, there was like the club kid scene, you know, the tranny scene. There was the rock and roll scene, you know. There was all these scenes. There's no scenes anymore because people are not giving them a chance they're not creating a scene and saying let's all do it you know and they're too distracted yeah and the only place that I, I feel like it could be possible is Brooklyn because I do see a lot of stuff happening there where they try to make these things go on and there is a pretty close knit community there and that's like the one spark I see but even in Hell's Kitchen where it's supposed to be all the gays are there I don't see a scene there it's random bars I feel like I'm in P-Town you know it's like it's not like I walk in and everybody's a friend of everybody these people live in the same neighborhood and probably see each other at the same bar all the time and they don't even talk to each other it's so bizarre you know I tell my friends all the time jokingly in my dramatic way (laughs) I say you know you go to a bar and you see all these cute boys and they're sweet and you try to talk to them and they ignore you but then the minute you go home you get on Grindr and there they are sending you a picture of their cum filled asshole saying come fill me up you're like oh my god why don't you say hi to me at the bar and now you're showing me your (laughs) dirty hole you know it's just you know can we find a happy medium people you know come on you know it's like it's like I even tell friends like I love texting I do I love texting but if you have to tell me something important let's have a conversation because things get lost in translation texting because you don't know if someone's saying like what or what or what (laughs) you know you don't know what that exactly means there's no tone in texting right exactly there is no tone but the face to face talking I mean yeah yeah just yeah it's I think it's going to be a real challenge for us uh, moving forward I mean certainly for the younger generations um, that you know fear of confrontation you know the actual face to face having to take responsibility for what you're there's no rebellion anymore why, why aren't people rebelling you know, against high rents? Why aren't people rebelling against, you know, having to work 90-hour weeks at their jobs? Why aren't people rebelling against, like, one-bedroom apartments being made into two bedrooms when they're not two bedrooms? Why aren't people rebelling against their space and time being taken away? Probably because they, because they don't have a voice. That's all we have, people, is space and time. Yeah. You know, one day time is up, <laughs> and if you don't, you're not out, you know, enjoying your space, then what do you have, you know? I just... I don't know. Some people are content, I guess, with um, with just being told what to do. No, not you. I've never been one of those. <laughs> Maybe it would have been easier. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been the most incredible 
just hear, listening to you talk, I could do it all day long. Oh, I got but, stories. We'll have lunch again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> next time. But uh, thank you so much, Mr. Michael Formica Jones. Thank you, Legs. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again real soon. Yes, and I still want you to do that music video we talked about. Uh, that's totally happening. Of my song, that's totally happening. Yes. Before we, before we're a hundred. Before, before we're one hundred years old, exactly. Thank you, darling. All right, bye, listeners. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Formica, my dear sweet Michael Formica Jones. Again, you can find him on Facebook. If you Google him, he's probably mixing up some trouble somewhere at some downtown party. Uh, And maybe you'll see him at Fire Island this summer. I certainly hope so. His parties are not to be missed. And again, go ahead, take him up on his offer. Send him a private message. You probably will hear from him. Anyway, guys, thanks again for tuning in. I wish you guys an absolutely beautiful week. And be good to you. You deserve it. Lots of love, guys. Take care. Bye. Want some lunch? For your ears. Lunch with legs.